entered my first laboratory, I knew essentially nothing about the daily practice of scientific research. I was willing to work for any investigator who was doing some kind of neuroscience and would take me in. Beggars can't be choosers, they say, and I was begging to get out of stocking shelves at the grocery store where I was working and into the neurosciences. This occurred about two years after I attained my bachelor's degree in biology. As it happened, the lab I joined was using a radioactive tracer to image the brains of rats, which had been induced to become diabetic. Diabetes is often accompanied by neuropathy, nerve damage, and the lab that first employed me was trying to determine whether that included pathology in the central nervous system. Two things from that experience have been consistent in all of the research projects I have been involved in since. First, the research was conducted on rodents, and second, the research was directed at a medical concern. Unfortunately for me and for my ultimate scientific interests, these both have their drawbacks. I mentioned in the last podcast that I think non-human animals, at least those with similar neural architecture to ours, probably have conscious experiences. But much of the most interesting research on consciousness has been done in monkeys and in humans. Monkeys are able to report their experiences, though not by using languages and their brains are remarkably similar to those of humans. The other factor in my research projects has been the translatability to medicine. I characterized a spontaneous mouse mutant that exhibited an extreme failure to produce myelin, the insulating sheath on the outside of axons. The developmental process of myelination is relevant to disorders like multiple sclerosis. Later, I studied synaptic development in the cerebellum of mice which lacked the gene for a subunit of the voltage-gated sodium channel. These mice had severe epilepsy, and they died within about three weeks of birth. My current research utilizes a rat model of post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been recording neuronal activity in the hippocampus of these rats using chronically implanted neural probes. But what drives me in neuroscience has never been the application to medicine. The question of consciousness is not really a medical question, it's a basic question. The sources of funding for basic science are often limited. I think this is a major reason that the problem of consciousness is not that widely investigated in the laboratory. That and the fact that a problem this deep can seem impenetrable to scientific methods. In truth, though, I think an understanding of consciousness is so fundamental that it should be considered of paramount importance. A complete science of psychology doesn't seem possible without an account for consciousness. Beyond that, the hard problem of consciousness is an existential question. We are seeking to explain what we really are. What is our actual place in the universe? What does it mean to be? In a previous episode, I said that the material world does not look like anything, that it does not sound like anything, because sights and sounds exist only in minds. One of my starting assumptions was that consciousness arises from the brain. I said that all conscious contents must come from some arrangement of action potentials. But there is nothing special about an action potential, and the majority of them don't seem to produce conscious experiences. In this podcast, I will provide a summary review of the relevant neuroscience in order to show you why we believe the thalamocortical system to be the substrate of human consciousness. Francis Crick and Christoph Koch coined the term neuronal correlates of consciousness. In the book, The Quest for Consciousness, Koch writes, quote, Francis and I are bent on discovering the neuronal correlates of consciousness, NCC. 
Whenever information is represented in the NCC, you are conscious of it. The goal is to discover the minimal set of neuronal events and mechanisms jointly sufficient for a specific conscious percept. The NCC involved the firing activity of neurons in the forebrain." Unquote. Neuroscience has advanced toward the discovery of the NCC heroically, in my opinion, over recent decades. Let's start by considering the NCC in terms of brain regions. Where in the brain does consciousness emerge? Let me begin with some basic neuroanatomy. The central nervous system is comprised of the brain and the spinal cord. The brain can be divided into the cerebrum, the diencephalon, the brainstem, and the cerebellum. The forebrain includes the cerebrum and the diencephalon, which is the thalamus and hypothalamus. All of the evidence points to consciousness and its contents emerging from functions in the forebrain, more specifically the thalamus and the cerebral cortex. These structures are often referred to collectively as the thalamocortical system. We can now declare with confidence that the proximate substrate for conscious emergence is the coordinated activity of a large portion of the thalamocortical system. To be conscious means to experience something, which implies that there can be no consciousness without contents, and contents arise from the cerebral cortex. The cortex is that familiar outer structure with its elaborate folds, the gyri and sulci, that covers the cerebral hemispheres of the brain. You've heard of the lobes, the frontal lobes at the forehead, the parietal lobes at the top, the occipital lobes at the rear, and the temporal lobes at the sides. The limbic lobes of the cerebral cortex are buried deeper underneath. When we refer to the lobes of the brain, we are referring to the cerebral cortex, often just called the cortex. The cerebral cortex is a layered structure of heterogeneous neuronal cell types. These are organized into columns of neuronal groups that encode similar types of information. Beneath, or subcortical to the lobes, the thalamus is a collection of nuclei that serve as relay stations between incoming sensory data and the cortex. When we refer to nuclei or ganglia, we are talking about collections of neuronal cell bodies that have a function in common. Because the cortex and the thalamus are so interconnected, and reciprocally connected at that, it is difficult to distinguish them functionally, especially with regard to sensory processing. So conservatively, in agreement with most other scientists in the field of consciousness, I conclude that the substrate of subjective experiences arises from functions within the thalamocortical system. In time, we may be able to further refine the substrate, perhaps to only the cerebral cortex, but that seems unlikely, at least to me. Certain enabling factors are required in order for consciousness to be achieved. This includes brainstem structures known as the reticular activating system, which communicates widely with the cortex and thalamus by means of neurotransmitters including acetylcholine and norepinephrine. Experiments carried out by Giuseppe Maruzzi and Horace McGowan showed that the reticular activating system controls the level of wakefulness. If this structure is destroyed, the patient will be permanently comatose. But the reticular activating system is not the substrate of consciousness. It's analogous to a battery that serves to power the forebrain and enable it to work, work that includes producing conscious experiences. We are interested in the proximate physical substrate of human consciousness here, so we mustn't get carried away with the enabling factors. Obviously, the thalamocortical system also requires nutrients, mainly glucose, and it requires oxygenated blood, but we aren't looking to include the digestive tract, 
the heart, and the lungs in the NCC. After all, why stop there? To get glucose, we need photosynthetic life. To get oxygen, we need an atmosphere. We need a sun to provide energy for photosynthesis. You get the point. In just a few logical steps, we end up calling the whole damn universe the NCC. That misses the objective of our inquiry. It seems to me that in principle, we could submerge a human thalamocortical system into an appropriate bath solution with an appropriate concentration of glucose and ions and a tonic level of neurotransmitters like acetylcholine and norepinephrine, bubble the solution with oxygen, and thereby achieve a steady conscious state. Our subject would enjoy conscious experiences in accordance with the firing behavior intrinsic to the thalamocortical system. Naturally, he would be cut off from outside sensory data, since we snipped away all of the incoming nerves, but we could keep him entertained by stimulating the cortical surface with electrical probes. My point here is that the NCC are contained in the thalamocortical system. Everything else in this bit of mad science is just enabling the thalamocortical system to work. But much of the thalamocortical system is not directly conscious either. Different areas of the cortex are involved with specialized functions. So, for example, the occipital lobe is largely concerned with visual processing, while auditory processing takes place in the temporal lobes. Body sensations, feelings of touch, etc., are handled in the parietal lobe. Neuroscientific experiments suggest that the primary sensory cortices are important for conscious perception for the associated sensory modality, but are themselves neither necessary nor sufficient to produce conscious experiences. This has been described most clearly with regard to the visual system, wherein the primary visual cortex, V1, does not directly participate in conscious experience. Christoph Koch describes the experimental evidence in detail in his book, The Quest for Consciousness. He describes experiments comparing perception in monkeys and humans to activities known to be occurring in V1, concluding that perception does not always follow V1 activity. I won't detail those here, but I recommend reading Koch's book. A line of evidence that I think is very interesting, though, is related to dreaming. Clearly, when we dream, we have detailed visual experiences, at least I do. Braun et al. published the results of a dreaming study using positron emission tomography, PET scan, in science in 1998. They found that during REM sleep, in which dreaming most commonly occurs, regional blood flow in V1 is suppressed compared to slow-wave non-REM sleep. But this is not the case in higher visual areas during REM. In searching for the NCC, we are trying to determine which structures are actually producing the qualia. According to a lot of evidence, those structures are in the cortex, but not in the primary visual cortex. This makes sense because visual illusions demonstrate clearly that we do not always experience what is being presented to our eyes. Rather, what we actually perceive occurs after some visual processing. So it seems to be the case that secondary and tertiary thalamocortical networks further along the sensory pathways produce the sensations and representations that we consciously perceive. This is good news because it means we can contrast the functional architecture of some cortical regions, like V1, with that of others, like the fusiform gyrus, to see what differentiates between human cortical structures that produce conscious contents and those that do not. It turns out that these higher regions of thalamocortical system are highly and reciprocally connected to each other, which is to say that they are highly integrated. So if the neural correlates of consciousness are limited to these regions of neuronal activity, 
asking how these regions function differently than the rest of the brain is apt to secure us important clues. The cerebellum, a major structure of the hindbrain, contains more neurons than the entire, much larger, cerebral hemispheres. If this structure completely fails to develop, or if it is removed entirely, there are definitely consequences for the patient, especially in the coordination of motor behavior, but consciousness is spared. The cerebellum contains massive numbers of neurons firing massive numbers of action potentials, but they are arranged in parallel to one another. In the book Sizing Up Consciousness, Marcello Massimini and Giulio Tononi write, quote, the cerebellum progressively assumes ownership of all motor patterns that initially have to be learned slowly, making a conscious effort. As a result, we are able to reach out a hand and grasp a glass of water without having to make conscious calculations of the weights and distances involved, or run our fingers over the keyboard of a piano to produce a harmonious sequence of notes without thinking. Seen from this point of view, the whole process is astounding. These modules deserve gratitude for their crystalline efficiency, flexibility, and the incredible speed with, with which they perform their tasks. For all this, the cerebellum pays a high price. It lacks integration. Even more, each cerebellar circuit seems to be organized in a series of feed-forward steps with no recurrent excitation." Unquote. In the cortex, V1 appears to also be organized in a parallel feed-forward manner. This contrast with the thalamocortical uh, system as a whole, which is highly integrated with specialized neurons and neuronal groups being specifically but widely connected to other thalamocortical neurons, integration seems to be the key to the physical substrate of consciousness. There is no single node in the brain where all of the relevant networks converge, no place in which all of the neural information processors report their collective findings and jack them into consciousness. Then how can neuronal network activities produce a unified conscious experience? Descartes postulated incorrectly that the pineal gland might be such a location of convergence. Daniel Dennett talks about this idea in his book, Consciousness Explained, in which he writes, quote, the standard objection to dualism was all too familiar to Descartes himself in the 17th century, and it is fair to say that neither he nor any subsequent dualist has ever overcome it convincingly. If mind and body are distinct things or substances, they nevertheless must interact. The bodily sense organs via the brain must inform the mind, must send to it or present it with perceptions or ideas or data of some sort, and then the mind, having thought things over, must direct the body in appropriate action, including speech. Hence the view is often called Cartesian interactionism, or interactionist dualism. In Descartes' formulation, the locus of interaction in the brain was the pineal gland, or epiphysis." Unquote. In my opinion, the insights of Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory are the most satisfactory explanation for how conscious experiences are unified. According to integrated information theory, the physical substrate of consciousness must constitute a single integrated entity. Moving across the surface of the cerebral cortex, there are topographical maps composed of columns of neurons working together. This has been especially described for the visual system. In the quest for consciousness, Koch writes, quote, the visual pathways are organized in a map-like manner with neighboring locations in the visual field projecting onto nearby locations in the cortex." Unquote. Recall that I made the claim that objects in the material world do not look like anything. This is so, 
but the organization of the visual cortical areas maintains information from the real world. That information comes in the form of sequences of action potentials, but it corresponds to actual positions of things in the material world. Gerald Edelman proposes what he calls re-entry as a mechanism for coordinating the activities of topographical maps. In his book, The Remembered Present, he writes, quote, Re-entry is a process of temporally ongoing parallel signaling between separate maps along ordered anatomical connections. Re-entrant signaling can take place via reciprocal connections between maps, unquote. By such orderly means, we end up with a highly integrated thalamocortical system capable of specific, differentiated activities. In the next episode, I will elaborate on integration and differentiation as I explore what we know about the differences between states of consciousness that occur when we are awake or dreaming and states of non-consciousness such as occur in non-REM sleep or under general anesthesia. In order to experimentally verify the theory of consciousness that we end up with, we may require substantial technological advancement. There are billions of neurons connected to one another at trillions of synapses. I believe that we will need at least two areas of technical progress. The accurate mapping of thalamocortical connections in the brain and the capacity for extremely high numbers of electrophysiological measurements in parallel. In the lab, I routinely measure the firing activity of perhaps 10 neurons using chronically implanted probes. The surgical implantation of these probes in rats requires a fair degree of time and technical skill, and subsequently recording neuronal activity costs a lot of time and effort too. Analysis of the data even more so, and this is to say nothing about the constant need for investigators to seek sources of funding. From this point in my career, I don't know whether or not I will continue to conduct experimental research in the long run. In academic science, we spend a couple of decades at most conducting experiments and mastering the techniques of our particular methodologies before we advance to the level of the independent primary investigator administering his or her own lab. At that point, many faculty members with ambitious research programs limit their exposure to the lecture hall to, to the minimum necessary that they need to in order to appease the dean. The primary investigator spends a substantial proportion of his, his or her time writing grant proposals, serving on committees, and meeting with graduate students and research staff, often to solve problems in order to keep the apparatus moving. I worry that the academic research direction, which is extremely difficult to advance into in the first place, abbreviates the opportunity to do two things that matter most to me. The first is teaching and engaging with students on interesting and meaningful topics. The other is writing and developing ideas. That means learning, a lifetime worth of learning. I mentioned the theoretical framework I developed and submitted for publication last year. The effort I put into that work, that project of night science, was inevitably accomplished in the space between my usual research obligations. If I am to make a valuable contribution to the discovery of a robust theory of consciousness, can it be done in my spare time? I have so much to learn in so many disciplines, and if I'm unable to undertake that scholarship, then who's able? The question is, how does one turn night science into their day job? Mm -hmm.